What a blessing it is that we can do this openly, freely, (laughs) singing like this. Don't ever forget to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are doing that very thing that we enjoy together like this in secret and small groups because their lives are in danger for that. Well, take out your Bibles, please. We're in Acts chapter 19 today. Acts 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, please grab one from under a seat close in front of you. Acts 19. We continue looking at the the history of the church, the early church, and specifically the travels of Paul. These last several chapters, as we've mentioned, follow Paul and his ministry journeys. And last week, we saw the conclusion of his second missionary journey, if you would, leaving Corinth, going to Ephesus, leaving Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus, then traveling back to Antioch, spending a little time there, some believe about a year or so, and then heading back out again on the third missionary journey. And that's where we find ourselves today in in chapter 19. I have a little map we could just pop up real quickly. It's the writing on it is pretty small. (laughs) We'll get it blown up for next week as we focus in. But you could see that the the line that's going through what's labeled as Asia there on the top, that's Paul as he's leaving and heading across through, through Antioch to Ephesus. And so that's where we find ourselves today, picking up chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. Paul now returns back to Ephesus, as we said. This man mentioned here, Apollos, we looked at that last week, a man that was teaching the Word of God there in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila came alongside him discipled him a little bit more, and now he has been sent back to the area of Corinth. Paul comes back to Ephesus, and we didn't look at at the city of Ephesus last time. Uh, It was at the time of Paul's visiting there, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, Asia Minor, if you would, or today's modern-day Turkey. It was a commercial hub, a lot, of, a lot of business transacted there. It had a huge harbor at this time, an estimated population of about 300,000 people. So a lot of people, very busy, but it was also an area where many from around the region would come to conduct business and then go back home. Just like m- most every city around there, very steeped in idolatry, we're going to see that occultic practices taking place here in Ephesus, widespread. Here in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. The one who went around and actually identified these seven wonders of the ancient world when speaking of the temple of Artemis here in Ephesus, in Ephesus said that all of the others paled in comparison. This temple to this false god was half again the size of a football field. One and a half times the size of a football field. It had a hundred columns that were over 50 feet tall. I mean, just imagine this structure. And we're going to look at this a little bit, should the Lord tarry next week, about what it was that they were actually worshiping on the inside of there. But anyway, here is where Paul arrived. He arrives in Ephesus. And as we continue in verse 1, it says, He found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So here we see that Paul comes and he finds these 12 men gathered together, no doubt in in some type of meeting, and he starts engaging with them and talking with them. It tells us, interestingly, that after a little while, Paul asks them this question, and we don't see this question recorded anywhere else that Paul would ask to anyone. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, what would prompt him to ask a question like that? We, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. Perhaps we know Paul certainly had the gift of discernment, but something, no doubt, in the way that they were reacting, in the way that they were talking and, and, and working there, perhaps, something was missing. And Paul asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, notice, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Now that has caused some people to believe that these 12 men weren't even saved. And I'll just tell you as as we go through this, there's many people that stand on that argument, but I believe that they were. And as I go through this, it's funny. I mean, I'll just get you a little glimpse into my, into my office and my study time. As I was reading commentaries this week, and one in particular of a, one that I, I hold very highly and I respect greatly, I was arguing with him out loud in my office when I was reading what he said. It doesn't say that. Wait, and here, let me just tell you, and this is, I'm not going to make a theological stance on this, but he calls them, notice in verse 1, he says he found some disciples. Luke uses that term in the book of Acts 28 times, every time it refers to believers. And I guess it goes beyond that for me because Paul tells us in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say that you have an understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in that. Now, Paul does tell us that it is impossible for anyone to say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. That can't happen. The Holy Spirit's work in every heart to come to faith in Christ is is, is absolutely a necessity. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit prompts us and leads us into that point where we confess Jesus is Lord. Paul says it's impossible without that. But is it necessary to know that that's the process in order for it to take place? Is it necessary for a child in order to say their first word that they understand that their brain engaged their lungs to exhale and their mouth to move? That's all happening with their... Obviously not, yet it still takes place. Now, I don't want to, like I said, go off and make a big theological argument with that other than to say, guys, it's not up to us to judge whether somebody's saved or not. It's up to us to share with them the entire counsel of God, the Word of God, the process in order to recognize that you're a sinner, confess your need for a Savior, inviting Jesus to come into your life, explaining the gospel to people. That's our job. But it's not our job to make sure that they were saved or not. That's God's job. That's between someone else and God. And I I say that because I, I have seen that happen often, and it's caused a lot of trouble in people when when they're whether they're saved or not is being judged by someone else. I think the, the bigger thing that I want to engage in and look at this a little bit more is the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer. It should, be, it should be something that as believers and as we understand this, we should all be able to answer that question that Paul asked them. And it should all be evident to us as to that work that, is, that has taken place. Salvation is a moment in time when we are born again. But sanctification is an ongoing process. 
the Holy Spirit involved, as we've already said, in the, no, no one can say Jesus is Lord, so the process of salvation, but also the process of sanctification. If you would keep your finger here and flip over to the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church here in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul writing later on back to the church that is formed here in Ephesus, he says this, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Here Paul clearly lays it out to us that we are as Christians to be careful how it is that we walk out this Christian walk. And he tells us that it is vitally important for every one of us to have a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. Literally, the, 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 that what is translated there, be filled with the Holy Spirit, literally means be being filled with the Holy Spirit. A continual filling of the Holy Spirit. As we do that, he goes on to say, speaking to one another, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, the way that we speak to one another, the way that we conduct ourselves with one another should be a reflection of the fact that the Holy Spirit is being poured into us. The way that we respond to God should be affected by that as well. Notice it tells us here that praise should fill our heart. Thanksgiving should fill our heart. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, as he would say in Philippians, placing others' needs above your own. Those are, that's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit being poured in to us. And I say that just to go back to what we saw here at the beginning. There was something probably about them that was missing. Was it joy? Was it power? Was it enthusiasm? Was the fire not there? And we can, as Christians, if we are not continually be f being filled with the Holy Spirit, those things can wane in our lives. And I just challenge every one of us today, is the fire, has the fire gone out? Or going out? Fan into flame that fire. Let the Holy Spirit do that work. It's interesting as he continues on in his discussion with them, he asks them the next question, well then, what type of baptism did you receive? How were you baptized? Into what were you baptized? And they said into John's baptism. Speaking of John the Baptist, Paul explains to them that that, that baptism was actually in preparation for the Messiah. That was looking forward to the one that was yet to come, and it was a sign of repentance. You repented and you were baptized. Paul then explains to them the difference about being baptized as a Christian after the cross. This was being baptized, being baptized with John's baptism, speaking of before Jesus came, suffered, and died, rose again. Paul explains to them, no doubt, what baptism into the, the Christian as a Christian means. It's not a preparation for the Messiah, it's in celebration of the Messiah. It is a sign of regeneration of new birth, being born again. And being baptized as a Christian, we identify ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
And if you are here today, you are an adult believer in the Lord Jesus. You, you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you have not been baptized. I encourage you to get a hold of the office sometime this week and, and get on, get, let, let us know that, and so that we can have you baptized. The day is coming soon when our baptismal will be ready and looking forward to that. But it's something that every believer should do as a public proclamation that we belong to Jesus. Now, there is a third baptism that is referenced here. Paul doesn't call it a baptism, neither does Luke here, but it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, you, we can argue back and forth all day long about this type of thing, but we believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event of when you are born again. It can happen at the same time. When someone is born again, the Holy Spirit comes into the believer as a guarantee, as Paul lays out in Ephesians chapter 1. He tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit is in every believer, but that as a separate event, the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer for power. Jesus calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. Verse 5, he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That is the same word that is used here in verse 6 to speak about what happened to them when Paul laid hands on them. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. And again, there are debates back and forth with this. We, as you know, said, as Calvary Chapel, we believe that it is a separate event. It is a separate event of the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer for power, for equipping in particular specific ministry. And just as evidence, notice verse 6, when this takes place, comes after verse 5. Verse 6, after verse 5. Verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, if we disagree, if you disagree with me on whether they were believers before verse 5, we know that Paul wouldn't have baptized them unless they were believers in verse 5. Verse 6 happens after verse 5. And again, my point being, you're here today. And you can't answer that question as to whether you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit and you want that power and you know God is calling you for that. I want to give you an invitation at the end of our service to come forward. We'll have elders up front that we'd love to pray with you and pray over that. Well, let's continue in our study. Verse 8. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily then in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Here we see again that Paul doing what Paul does. <laughs> Paul gets to the city. He comes back to Ephesus here. He goes back to the same synagogue that he went to when he was there previously, and he begins sharing the word of God again. And interestingly, he's there for three months. That's like his longest time, I think, that we've seen, that, it, that they allow him to continue in the synagogue teaching Jesus as the Messiah. And many, it tells us, were persuaded. But most were not. They became hardened, and they kicked him out. And Paul leaves then. And now look, it goes, he goes to the school of Tyrannus. Uh, literally, his, his name translated means tyrant. <laughs> There's a lot of students probably saying, hey, I have a, I, that's my teacher. But he was this philosophical school 
And Paul then is allowed to teach there. Most believe that, again, there was, it was common in that time in Ephesus that, that any type of school or work would go on until about 11 o'clock in the morning. Then everyone would take a break, have lunch, and take a nap, take a siesta, just enjoy for a few hours, and then start back up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon for the evening. Well, that would take place in the school. It tells us that daily for two years, Paul took advantage of that, went into the school during that break time. That's what most, again, believe, took advantage and was teaching the Word of God, boldly sharing the Word of God. Can you imagine that, listening to Paul teach for three to four hours a day, six days a week for two years? I'd love to, I want, I want the videos of that when I get to heaven. I want to I watch that. But I want to focus on, for a second on the result. Look at verse 10 again. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It does not say all who lived in Ephesus. It said all who lived in Asia. Can I pop that map up again for a second? All who lived in Asia. Paul didn't travel all throughout that area during that time. He was in Ephesus teaching daily. So what does that mean? They didn't, they didn't have a live stream then. They didn't have YouTube that people could pick up the videos. That means the gospel spread the way Jesus designed the gospel to be spread. People came and they heard the word of God in in Ephesus from Paul. And then, like I said, some traveling in from other places, doing business, transacting, hear this word. They go back and they start sharing it with those that are around. And the gospel spread throughout the entire region. Guys, that's Jesus' blueprint for the church. He says, again, as Paul writing back to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, notice, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all maintain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, the equipping of the saints. That's you. That's me. We, equip, we become equipped and we take the message out. I hope you didn't all come here this morning to check it off of your to-do list for the week and then you just go about the rest of your life. I hope you came here to get equipped so that you can go out this week and make a difference for the kingdom of God. That's why we're here. That's why we should be here. That's God's plan and design for his church. Notice, too, tells us that he was dedicated continually teaching the Word of God. Guys, discipleship, again, taking the Word of God that's poured into you, pouring it out to others, but the Word of God is the foundation. It didn't say that Paul was getting together in this philosophical school proclaiming his philosophy. He was teaching the Word. He was teaching the Scriptures. He was going through them, no doubt, line upon line, and explaining and pointing to how all of it points to Jesus. In his his farewell to the church in Ephesus in chapter 20, he tells them, while I was with you, I did not fail to share with you the entire purpose, the entire plan, the entire counsel of God. That's what we desire to do here. If you've ever wondered why it is that we go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, that's because if it was left up to me and I just cherry-picked my favorite verses here and there, we wouldn't get the whole counsel of God. That's why we go through it all, New Testament on the weekends, Old Testament on Wednesday nights, going through the entire Bible. We want to hear all that God has. And then take that out again 
and spread it. Well, we also see, verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Here we see that some pretty amazing things were taking place. But the thing I want to point out right off the bat is who was performing the miracle. Verse 11 is clear. Notice, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul is the tool. The miracle is God. Miracle is God's. He's the one who's passing out this gift. He is the one who is deciding who and where and how. It's his call. He's the one who's doing it. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that the miracles that were done and the way that they were done at that time brought credibility and confirmed the work of Paul and the apostles at that time. But he's just a tool. Guys, healing miracles are not a ministry. They're a gift. God gives these the gift of healing to an individual to pass on to another individual. And, and here we see that it's, it, it's, it's interesting how this takes place. And I got to wonder, again, this is how my mind works. I wonder, Paul, he's working, still making tents, and he sweats a lot. I, I can relate to him because I sweat a lot. When I'm working, I, I got to change my shirt all the time, sweat and cry crazy. So he's got sweat bands on. And I wonder who was the first guy to say, after Paul took it off and threw it down, he says, he snuck up there and stole it and went and put it on his sick brother and said, it worked. And so it started, I mean, I wonder how, who was the first one to try that. But I do want to, I do want to make a point that notice it says God was performing extraordinary miracles as opposed to ordinary miracles. These were extraordinary miracles. And I think the danger sometimes is we can read something like this and say, I want to duplicate that. I want to do that. And we step out, we start saying, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, and start making, I'm going to go make a name for myself with that. We're going to see what happens to some who try that in a minute. But the point being, it's God who does it. It's God who decides. Do healings still take place today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today? Absolutely. But it's up to God where, when, and how that takes place. We need to be obedient, but we can't, we can't move forward and say, well, that's what we did, so we're going to claim that right now, and we're going to move forward. I like how David Guzik kind of summed this up. He said, God seems to like doing things in new and different ways. Therefore, we receive whatever is proven to be from the hand of God, but we pursue only that which we have a biblical pattern for. We see a biblical pattern, then we can pursue that and follow it. But if we see God doing an extraordinary thing, that's just great. If he wants to do that again now, great. But again, extraordinary. The only time, by the way, it's mentioned ever in the Bible that this, is, this took place. And guys, bottom line, I always come back to this when speaking of miracles. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing. The greatest miracle of all is not a dead man physically becoming alive or a sick person becoming well. It's a dead man spiritually becoming alive eternally. That's the greatest miracle. Because every one of these that were healed physically eventually died physically. Guys, when we are born again as believers, we never die. 
this body physically will, but guess what? We're getting brand new upgraded models. <laughs> and our, our soul never dies. The Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and even everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That was a question. <laughs> Amen. All right, well, verse 13. Here we get an example, somebody trying to copy what was happening, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And in the man... And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and subdued them, all seven of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, like I said, there's a, there's a, there's a point to be made there that I've already made. Don't try to copy something. It's not, it's not good. We let the Lord do what the Lord's going to do. But I do want to point out something here that is extremely important for all of us. Guys, spiritual warfare is real we face a very real enemy. I think, I think there's, two, there's, there's ditches on both sides of the road, and the enemy would love for us to either get into either one. That he's harmless and that there's no problem, or that, he's, that, he, has, that he has all the power and we're, we should be terrified of him. Bottom line, Peter tells us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Notice, first of all, your adversary. Your personal adversary. Make no mistake about it. The enemy, the devil, all of the demonic forces hate you. They don't dislike you. They hate you. They hate all of mankind. We were created in God's image. And they hate it. But as Christians, they really hate us. A very real enemy. And notice, he says, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's not harmless. They don't want to just make our life miserable. They want to destroy us. But notice, it says, it, Paul, Peter doesn't say run from them. He says resist him. Stand firm. As a matter of fact, James says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, he doesn't say flee, flee from you like the seven sons of Sceva. If we go in under our own power, he's like, who are you? But we go in as children of God, saved by the blood of Jesus. He has no, he has, he, he has no choice but to flee. But I want to make, this is extremely important. This is the, the point I want to make more than above anything else. Notice this. He says, firm in your faith. Not firm in the faith. Firm in your faith. 
Because the sons of Sceva had a belief in some type of faith or they wouldn't have said what they said. But notice what they said. Jesus whom Paul preaches. Guys, Jesus has to be your Lord and Savior. And I want to speak to anybody who is here today and the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart right now. And you realize that Jesus is your parent's Savior. Or your spouse's Savior. Or whatever it might be. But He's not yours. You've never made Him your Lord. He's never become your Jesus. Alone, on your own, you don't stand a chance. And if you're relying on the fact that you come from a Christian family or you're a part of Calvary Chapel Surprise or your, 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 your husband or wife is a Christian, that will do you no good. Jesus has to be your Savior. He has to be your Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity in a moment, if you haven't, to make Him Lord of your life. But as believers, as those who follow Jesus, we don't fear the enemy. He's a very real enemy. We resist Him firm in the faith. Paul will tell the church in Ephesus, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The whole thing is laid out for us as believers, standing firm, the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword, which is the Word of God. We can stand firm. Guys, we shouldn't be concerned if we face spiritual warfare as Christians. If you're a believer here today, you should be concerned if you don't face spiritual warfare. The enemy's coming after you. That means he considers you a threat. But we, shouldn't, we don't worry about that because greater is he who is in us than he who comes against us. Amen? Well, let's finish this. Let's look at verse 17. This became known to all. So this, this event where these seven guys go running out of the house naked and wounded became known to all. It kind of spread around town. Both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their book together and began burning them in the sight of everyone, and they counted up the price of them, and it was about 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. This spreads around, this word spreads around, and no doubt again, the truth of what's going on, and fear falls upon them. This reverence of who Almighty God is, and His Messiah, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. This starts going out, and I love this. Verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. I love that concept. When we... When we magnify something, does it become bigger? No. The object does not become bigger, does it? You place something under a microscope, that object does not become bigger. But our perception of it becomes bigger. We see it more clearly. We see it more completely. And that's what happens when we magnify Jesus. 
When we magnify who he is, that's what it means, the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean the J-E-S-U-S. No, it means who he is, all that he is. And when we magnify the name of Jesus, guys, radical things happen. We see it here. It tells us that believers were continually coming and confessing. They were even bringing these, these things in from their life that they realized as they magnified the name of Jesus, I can't have this as a part of my life. They had these books, these occultic books that they had from their past. And they did, notice, they did not, it doesn't say, and they realized and came under conviction and sold them in a garage sale. It says they burned them. They destroyed them. And I, I, I like that picture for two reasons. One, it means that it didn't go out to anybody else. But secondly, there's no going back once that book is torn. There's no, there's no turning back anymore. And guys, when we magnify the name of the Lord Jesus, that takes place. That same radical thing takes place in our own life. We see things in our lives, and God reveals those things to us. It says, you know, I can't, I can't be a part of that anymore. There might be things that, that God reveals as we magnify him. Maybe it's sin in our lives, but I'm going to tell you, there's things that God has revealed to me in my life that I would exp- I'd even tell most of you, and you say, well, I don't think that that's a sin. But if God tells you to get rid of it and you don't, that's a sin. And as we magnify the Lord Jesus, those types of radical things take place. You know what else happens when you magnify something? You look through a magnifying glass at something. Does everything else in the room disappear? No, but you don't see it anymore, do you? (laughs) You're focused and attention is there and and things can be going on over here, but that's not our focus anymore. I love the lyrics of that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Guys, when we magnify the name of the Lord Jesus, his glory and grace don't get bigger, but they become more clear and real to us. Guys, when magnification takes place, transformation takes place. It says that they kept coming as God would lay things on their hearts and deal with those things? Bible, Bible tells us if we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful. The author of Hebrews tells us that we're all in a race together. We're all, we all have a race to run, each one of us. And it says, it says, let's not get tripped up with the things that so easily entangle us, but let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The things that so easily entangle us. We magnify the Lord Jesus. Those things are revealed to us. We can put those aside. And, and I, love, I love how it finishes. Verse 20, so because of that, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Guys, that's our only hope for our families, our communities, our country, <laughs> is that. But it begins, again, as we see here, it starts with us as believers. It starts with us as Christians magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus. The psalmist said, let's magnify the Lord together. So I would like, would you stand with me? I want to do that. I want to magnify the Lord together in this place. And I would ask that 
We're going to sing a cu- just a couple of closing worship songs. I'd like to ask that nobody leave during this time. Because as we're singing these couple of songs, I want to invite any one of you that the Holy Spirit may be working on your heart this morning as we magnify the Lord together right now. That if you, maybe, maybe the Lord's revealing to you right now that you've never made Jesus your Jesus. But you want to know that if you were to die today, your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. I want to invite you to come forward. I'm going to be right up here in the center. I'd like you to come forward and see me. I'd love to pray with you about receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning. But if you're here as a believer and you want the baptism of the Holy Spirit or you want to deal with something that maybe the Lord lays on your heart as you magnify Him right now that you want to put aside and you want to make a public profession about that, I invite you to come forward. You can kneel up here. You can worship that way. You can speak with one of our elders or prayer team members to pray with you about that. You want more power in your life and the Holy Spirit coming upon you. We, we'd love to pray with you about it. If you want prayer for something physically that you want healing for, allow us to pray with you and see what the Lord might decide to do with that. He still honors and answers those prayers, but we leave it up to Him. But I want to do that. We're going to sing just a couple of songs. And I'd like that as we do that, if the Lord is laying on your heart for some reason, please, please come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Let's magnify the Lord together.